Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hey, welcome back to Create Out Loud. Today we are talking to Reese Palmer. Reese is a singer-songwriter in the Southern Soul tradition, and she's had a really extraordinary career, and we're going to talk about it in detail. And we're going to talk about how thinking she had it made at 25 turned out to be both incredibly difficult because it wasn't true and an incredible opportunity to choose herself and to realize that no one is coming to save her. Come on in and listen to this very honest, very moving conversation. I was so grateful to get to be part of it and I think you will be too. What was it really like to be back at the Grand Old Opry? Like, I just think it must have been exciting but also kind of fraught and I would have been I'm just totally projecting on you. I would have been angry. (laughs) I was telling somebody um, yesterday, I think for me, it was like, it was healing. Lord, the last, I'm trying to think how long I've been independent. It's been like 11 years. So like the last 11 years have been me like trying to work through not taking um, rejection personally. Oh my God. Right there. I just got chills. Oh yeah. Cause it's, I'm still working on that 30 years into this gig. (laughs) No, like it's an everyday process. Like, don't get me wrong. I definitely do not have it down, but I have a little bit more perspective on it. And so when I left Nashville in 2010 and got married and moved to North Carolina, I was like a wounded, I was very wounded. The fact that like no one reached out in that time, like no one from Nashville reached out. Like it, no record labels, no, none of the institutions, none of the industry, just people that I was friends with, like people that were my friends did. But for the most part, no, I didn't get any welcomes or check on you. How you doing? None of that. Like effectively I was dead. Right. I mean, Erased almost. Yeah. And so it's hard not to take that personally. And How feel can like we not? We're, we're humans. Yeah. We want to be connected. We want to be seen. And then we're artists, creatives on top of it. For a very long time, it felt like that. And, you know, with the resurgence of everything and, and the past year, suddenly it's like, oh, no, you're not dead. Hi. Can you do this? <laughs> Would you be interested in doing this? So it was a lesson for me and something that I try to tell artists that are new is like, don't take any of this personally. Like it has everything to do with your buzz and what everyone else is saying about you. And so the moment that you're hot, like you're hot. And then the moment that people aren't talking about you anymore, you're not, you just have to learn not to take that personally and like be able to keep going forward. Can I just interrupt you for a second? So many of the women I work with and coach, they are so afraid of both the buzz, like getting the buzz and how do they handle it? And then they're so afraid of not getting the buzz that they don't, they don't get off the dime. They don't start creating. Is there anything that's helped you with that? Therapy. Therapy. Yes. <laughs> Honestly. Yes. There, I mean, like I, I credit my therapist for the years that we worked together. Like that was one of the things that we talked about a lot mm-hmm. was just me feeling like, I feel like I feel thrown away. I feel abandoned. I feel mm-hmm. rejected. 
And it's really hard to move forward and have good feelings about all of this when, you know, I feel like orphaned. She just was really good at like, Reese, you're not your job. Like, that's not who you are. Like in every aspect of your life, you would be considered successful. Like you're in a, a marriage and you have a healthy child and now two children mm -hmm. and you have good friends and like you still work. Like you, regardless of what the industry decided, you decided that you were going to continue working and you have continued and survived and thrived. You know, what the industry does or does not think about you doesn't determine what you're doing on a regular basis. That helped a lot. I don't know. And I just stopped caring about what everybody thought and just made art, like just made what I wanted to make and like not worried about, you know, people being mad about it or whatever. I just made art. Did you hear her say that? I just made art. So simple and so profound and courageous. And I just want to look at you and say, are you just making the art? Are you digging into the self-trust to find that energy and that voice that is yours? And so getting the call was, and getting to stand on the stage and getting to do this in front of my daughters, getting to do it in front of my husband, because they weren't there the last time I did it. It was, it was great. And I got to stand on that stage and I did it on my own terms. Like I did my own music and I did the music that I wanted to do. I didn't do the sing the radio single. I didn't do any of that. I did Seeds, which oh, is a protest song. song. Oh my God. Yeah. That's how I found you. Oh God. That ah. song just makes me, oh, I, I get chills all over my body just thinking about it. Thank you. Yeah. So I got to do that song on the Opry stage, which was like a, a, a big coup in itself for me yes it is it's a and, coup period because uh, lord i'm just imagining all those poor people that were like oh that's a cute song and then yeah. they went to the website and saw the video and it was like oh wow okay you know and i got to do somerville which is a song mm -hmm. about my family and where my family is from and then i did a linda martell song who is the first black woman to play the grand Ole opry and in 1968 and so and like she's the reason i am here and she's the name of my show is, is because of her and all of that. And so I got to do three things, show them where I'm from, what I'm about and who brought me here. That's a big deal. So like, I can't even be mad about that. Like I, I, I was, I was like, I'm determined to make this opportunity intentional. Was it hard for you to pick those three songs? Did you have to think about it a lot or did they just pop? Like, those are the three I'm going to do. No, those are the three. When I, as soon as, um, my publicist told me that we, that I was going to do it. And then I got three songs. I was like, Oh, well, I know. Oh, that's great. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. In case I never get invited again or and it's another 13 years before I do it, I, I went and I did exactly what I wanted to do. Excellent. I love that. And I want to go back for something you said, you were talking about working with your therapist. You decided to carry on your career after you left the label that wasn't working for you. I am mm -hmm. so fascinated with these moments in life when we think things, we've gotten the golden ring. We think things mm -hmm. are going the way. And then we go, uh-uh, this, isn't, no, this it. isn't it. This isn't working. Can you take us into that moment? I know it was a long time ago. And to when you realize, no, I have to, I have to leave the label and, and be an independent. Cause it's a, it's a hard decision. I just self-published my first book. I've mm -hmm. always had big publishing deals. So I have lived my own version of that, but it's um, even, I think a bigger deal when you're a recording artist. 
Yeah, it's um. So, Lord, okay. So I signed to that label in two thousand six. So I had just turned twenty five. It was oh, the summer yeah. I turned twenty five, and um, I thought I made it. Like I've been <laughs> working since I was eighteen for this. Everything was good in the very beginning and it was great and everybody was excited and I wasn't really, I was so grateful to be in the situation that I wasn't really taking stock in some of the things that were happening around me. It went from being this really great experience to being a very toxic experience. I played a role in that because of decisions that I made, both personal and business-wise, and they played a role in it for sure. And... I was at the point, so fast forward to 2009, I was trying to undo some of those toxic decisions that I had made Mm -hmm. and set the situation course correct, so to speak. I was in a relationship that I shouldn't have been in that was a part of my record deal, a part of my recording situation. I tried to get out of that and it was not made easy to get out of. Then I started looking at my contract. I had a new manager and my manager was like, what in the world did you sign? Like, what is all this? <laughs> you know, at the, again, I was so grateful that I was just like, this is great. And I think, and this is a sidebar. I think people, especially artists, creative people, we think a savior is coming. We do. Oh my God. Oh my God. I wasted it's so it. many years of my life. I, I, Oprah, I thought Oprah, I get on Oprah and then I'll be saved and she'll I'll make, be saved. I'll be saved. She will make my career and end even deeper. Reese, that I will then believe in myself because she said you're good enough. Right. Yes. Yes. Ugh. So we're all looking for the savior, whether it's a publisher, whether mm-hmm. it's a publishing deal, whether it's a record contract, whatever. We're all a number on the charts, right? That's right. The Grand Ole Opry. And the, and the savior becomes something different every time you. It, does, it keeps it's moving. Right. <laughs> it moves. I just was like, this is not good. Like, this is not good. And I was being told like to stop having so many opinions about things and just Ooh. do what everybody wanted me to do. I had trusted a lot of people. And so I wasn't really paying attention to like the finances mm-hmm. and got to the point where I realized that my band hadn't been paid in like a year. Like I had been paying them for the gigs that I was directly paid for. I paid them, but for the gigs that the record company was supposed to be paying for, they weren't paying for them anymore. So that was an alarm. And then I did, I did the song Nowhere. I didn't want to do it. And I was told basically shut up and just do it. I'm so angry right now yeah. for and 25 year old you, 27. Yeah. I just was like, I told my manager, I was like, I just, I'm in, in extremely unhappy. I can't tell you how unhappy I am in this situation. I asked to leave, scheduled a meeting. I drove to Atlanta because my record company was based in Atlanta, sat in front of the owner of the label. And I was just like, I'm not happy. You're not happy. This isn't good. Like, can we just please not do this anymore? And he said, if you could get someone to write a check for you, and it was a ridiculous amount that nobody was going to pay for this. And he was like, if you get somebody to write a check, then I'll let you go. I knew that wasn't going to happen. Then I was informed that we weren't going to do a second album, that we were just going to record a couple new songs and tack it on to the first album. Because of that, it wouldn't count as a second album. So I wouldn't get an advance. So there would be no new money coming in or any of that. And so my manager and my lawyer and I sat down, looked at the contract, tried to figure out how to get out, couldn't get out. And so my only recourse was to file bankruptcy. And so at 27 years old, in the middle of, I had just signed a modeling contract. I had just done a pilot for a television show on Travel Channel. Like all these great things were happening. Everything just stopped. 
I did the um, the bankruptcy, and the day of my hearing, the the head of the label showed up at court and disputed it, and so then it turned into a trial. Oh so what goodness. would have ended in like three weeks was it took a year, and in that time, I developed nodes on my vocal cords and couldn't sing. Um, I couldn't perform because everything was kind of in limbo. Right. And um, I was working a retail job at at the mall in Nashville while my video was still playing across the hallway in the Apple store. That is so surreal. I just have to Mm -hmm. stop there for a second. How did you, how did you take care of your mental health during that? I mean, I drank a lot. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, filling out the bankruptcy papers. I remember I drank an entire bottle of wine because I knew that it was like this, you're in for it. Like this isn't going to be easy. Yeah. And, you know, I'm working my retail job. I'm seeing people that I've been on tour with walking through the mall. And I'm like trying to hide in the dressing room at this store. So nobody sees me. You know, my peers are, are going on tour and doing all these things. And meanwhile, I'm in Nashville working a minimum wage job trying to get through this trial. Finally, I got to the point I couldn't afford to stay in my apartment, this apartment that I love so much and that I, you know, bought at the height of everything, I couldn't afford to pay for the apartment, my monthly anymore. And so I had to give up the apartment and I had to move home and um, moved in with my parents. I'm 27 years old. After being on my own since I was 18, I'm back in my parents' house. It was horrifying. And it lasted a year. The only thing that got me through was God, like my, my faith and, and all of that, because it was like, it was, I mean, like everything that you could think, every icon that you can have in your life was just stripped away. That's Money what it was sounds stripped. like. It sounds like yeah. it, it's such an archetypal passage, right? Yeah. Every, everything that you had worked for, everything that the culture says, yay, you've made it was taken. Do you look back on it and think that's just the patriarchy trying to put strong black women down or do you look at it as that's the way the music business works or do you look at it through different lenses and I love I mean I love that you've said I made mistakes and I take responsibility for mm-hmm. it. So obviously we're not just done to I think I'll be honest with you like I don't I've never looked at it through that lens I've always looked at it like it was like I'm, I am a person that I do believe that like what you put out you get back and mm-hmm. so I am um, because of some of the decisions that I made during that time, some of this was like the the natural consequences of mm-hmm. those decisions. That was very hard on myself. And like it, my friends who know into like all the intimate details mm-hmm. of it are just like, I think you're very hard on yourself. But like, mm-hmm. honestly, I think that some of that was consequences. I do. And then the other part of it was while all this was going on, like I was, ta- I had talked to other labels and stuff and they were just like, okay, well, when you get out of your deal, you know, we'll, this will circle back. I was like, okay, well, great. And so then once everything was over, no. <laughs> so I went back to Nashville after the trial was over and started writing again and was trying to revisit some of those relationships. And at that point, nobody would take meetings. No one would call me back. No one was calling my manager back. Was Nothing. that because they thought you were hard Damage, to with? Damaged goods. Damaged like goods. I had already had... <sighs> So at this point, I had already put out three songs Mm -hmm. that made it into the 40s and not higher than that. But you were the first Black woman to have a song on the country charts in 20 years when that happened. Right. Yeah. But that meant nothing. Nothing. It meant nothing (laughs) once. It meant nothing at the time or it meant nothing once you'd gone through the trial. 
I mean, I don't honestly think that it meant anything at the time. I think that I probably was the most excited about or most moved by it. Mm-hmm. I don't really think like I know that it was used for publicity and I was in a couple I was in papers and stuff for that. But like in the industry, I don't think it meant anything. OK. And then I could be the token for stuff like right, like right. we need to rec- when we need to represent that we have black people call crazy. Yeah, right, right. You can be our token black. <laughs> yeah, That's you can us. be our you can be our black girl. And so mm-hmm. when it was all over, it was like, well, we don't really need you. We don't need you. It didn't work for your record label. And so, you know, we're good. The thing that got me through to answer your initial question was just, it was faith in my parents Mm -hmm. and like my friends. Like if I didn't have a support system like I have, I seriously don't know what I would do. I don't know that I would have made it. Like it was just lowest of the low. This year has been the first time that I've been able to talk about that story without crying because it just was like devastating. It was. I mean, I'm devastated listening to it. I kind of want to go take a nap now. (laughs) You're right. You know, I mean, I just, I feel like I just lived it with you and my heart's still beating fast. I, I, yeah. Did you, you you weren't, you weren't creating that year while that was happening. You were just trying to survive. You weren't writing, were you? I actually was writing. Wow. I was actually writing. Actually, a couple of the songs that are on my project, the Back Porch Sessions, I wrote during that time. I just had to hide things because I didn't want the label to take them. Sure, of course. Because I still was technically under a, a deal. And so I would ask people, just please don't turn this in write it and you know we'll still write and still create because I thought that as soon as I got out of this I was going to be making an album and like it was going to be business as usual right and it never was again (laughs) yeah you know one of the things you said in an interview is I was so used to having a manager or label and agent etc to do the work for me I had to get back into the hustle mentality my advice even if you have a lot of help make sure you're always planning and thinking ahead for yourself and I've had to learn that so many times do you do you think you'll ever forget it now no. <laughs> in fact, it's so it's so deeply ingrained in me now that I'm having a hard time. Like I need an assistant. Right. And we were trying to figure out, you know, who could do it and that kind of thing. And like I have a really hard time letting go. Well, I have two people in my life have offered to help me. They're like, any 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 time you want to send over the password, you can. And I'm like, but I have to go through it again. Like it's just yeah, it's I can't now. Yeah, it's almost a little bit of, I don't want to use the word trauma lightly. It is though, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah like is. you, yeah, and I never want to be at the mercy. That's what I've said to myself in different situations. I never want to be at the mercy yet, fill in the blank. But it goes back to that, that savior thing. I never want to be at the mercy of someone's going to save me of that fantasy. It's yeah. so insidious. It is, it's, it's bad. And I think that it directs a lot of the work that I do now. And meaning like with the the show. Yeah. With the show and like some other things that I'm developing right now, because I don't ever want anybody. I think that's the thing. Like I don't ever want anybody to be as devastated because I'll tell you a story. So the first project that I did after all of that was over was Mm -hmm. the children's project in 2013. Thank you. No, I love that project too. That project saved my life. So we did this, this project. It was great. And we got a lot of attention and like my husband and I did all of this from our house. Like we did it all ourselves. So I decided, okay, I'm, I'm not as shell shocked anymore. I want to do a regular project. So I did a Kickstarter, raised money and started working on the backport, what would become the backport session. And we recorded it. I did it with two very dear friends, great producers in Nashville. And everybody was like, this is a really good project. You should shop this. 
And I was like, ah, I don't know. I don't want to shop it. I'm not sure. Because I just didn't want to deal with the rejection. And just going to say for everybody shopping, it means going to labels. Yes. Saying, yeah. Yes. Thank you. I'm sorry. Yes. That's okay. Shop, play it for different and see if anyone was interested. And so my attorney sent it to some people and we got some interest from this particular record company. This guy remembered me from my country days and loved the project. And he's like, this is a cool project because it's a lot of different things. She looks great. Like she still looks really good. She still looks good. You're not over the hair. The old cow looks good. Like she's still giving milk. Oh my God. And mind you, I was only like 32, I think. I know, I figured the math. I was doing the math. It's like 33 or something. And I was like, gee, she still looks good. But anyway, this label is like hype. Everybody's excited. They're talking about flying me out to LA to meet the rest of the record label and talk to the, you know, tell them about the project. And do you think she'd be interested in making it longer? Cause it was only five songs. And mm-hmm. I was like, uh, yeah, especially <laughs> if it's other people's money. We were hyped. We were so excited. And I was crying and all this. I was like, I can't believe this is happening. Fast forward a week. They ask about like, how many fans does she have on social media? How many, what's mm-hmm. her, um, what's her mailing list? Like I had to start from scratch. Like I couldn't take anything from the record label they had my I mean my even my social media pages I had to delete everything and start again oh my god yeah I was starting from scratch I get a phone call from my attorney and he's like Reese, I am so sorry he's like I are I've been arguing with this guy for like the last couple hours but they feel like they can't work with you because they'd have to start all over again with you because you don't have a built-in following already and that sort of thing and so they're gonna pass I was devastated for like a week just like devastated. And I was like, I don't ever want to feel that again. I don't ever want to feel that. I'm not, no one else is holding up anything that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. No one else is going to keep me from moving forward when I want to do, when I want to move forward. And I'm just not going to be holding to that anymore. There's no one coming to save you. I'm not going to be waiting for any gatekeeper. Mm -mm. So I was like, if I have to wait for this, then I'm never going to make music again. And so from the release of Backport Sessions to today, like I just I'm very down on people not doing for themselves if they can. You're just going to hear me over and over again. I wish you could see how excited I am when Reese talks about this, about how she had to keep learning over and over again that she has to pick herself, that she had to do her own work and how it has led her to more and more of... I don't want to say success, although that's true, but a fullness of self, a fullness of creativity, because that's the real rub that I've had to learn. Yes, it's great to get my work out there on my own terms. It's very empowering. But what's really important is how it's changed me as a person and as a creator, because there's this deep agency, this deep ownership. And without that, I don't think we can find our and, and, and put together, I don't think it's finding, I think it's developing our own creative voice. We can't find the energy and the flavor of what we're here to bring if we're waiting to be found, discovered, waiting for the gatekeeper to say yes, waiting to be saved. I just don't think it happens. At least it didn't for me. Take me into what it feels like for you to create music. How does a song start Does it start with a melody? Does it start with a bridge? Does it start with a word? Does it start with a feeling in your body? All songs start different. 
like for example, seeds started with a quote. Then from there, I just started thinking of what I would want to say in the song. Like what kind of, what was the message that I was trying to convey? The song you were here from um, Revival, it, I, it was verses before anything. I didn't have a melody or anything. I just had verses. And so I just started writing down what I wanted to say about that story. Right. And then that was, something, that was about lo- losing a, a child. Yeah, that was about a miscarriage. And um, it was like a poem almost. And then it turned into the song. And then some things are like, like I had the entire chorus for You Could Be Dancing from the children's album in my head. Like I was driving and I was, and I was singing it. And I was like, okay, that's a chorus. I don't know what the rest of it is, but that's a chorus. From there, we built the verses. Some of it is like, I want to write a song about this thing. And so then I start really, really thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Most of the songwriting happens in my head before it even is pinned to paper. Like I have to think about it. I'm very, <laughs> I probably, it's overwrought a little bit sometimes because I just like, I think and think and think and think and think. And then finally I'm like, okay, now I write it down. Cause now it has to make sense to me before I can write it down. Interesting. And would you be picking on the guitar while you're doing that or? Sometimes, Mm -hmm. sometimes, like sometimes it's just chords. Like a lot of times uh, breathe, um, breathe in, breathe out was just chords Mm -hmm. for the longest time. And I didn't know what it was. And I just kept, I would play it over and over again. I'm like, I don't know what this is, but it is something. I love that. that I don't know what it is, but it is something. It's something. That is the creative process in an Mm -hmm. nutshell. And you have the trust and the curiosity to keep listening and playing with it. Some things just gnaw at you. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that I feel like need to be written. And so however it comes to me, if it keeps coming to me, then I'm like, that's, it's something. You said they at some point. Do you bring it to collaborators at some point? Is it is yes. people you always go to? Yeah, I have um, three, like, well, it's more like four. It's like four people that I very much trust. Shannon Sanders is one of my longtime collaborators. We've been working together since I was 19. How and did you meet? Uh, we met through um, a mutual friend. And I, I met this gentleman when I lived in New York. And um, he was a... Was he? He's like an A&R at Motown. He liked one of my managers. And, uh, but we became friends. He was like, you need to meet, there's two people you need to meet, Blue Miller and Shannon Sanders. I fell in love with both of them. Blue and I, he was a longtime collaborator until he passed a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Shannon, I took a meeting. I went to Nashville. We sat in his car and listened to music and just cracked up. And like, he's just one of the coolest, most laid back, funny kind, just insanely creative people that I've ever met. He's like a big brother. And he introduced me to his producing partner, Drew Ramsey. They worked on my first album. They did the Backport Sessions and they wrote and produced a couple songs on Revival. And they've just been my friends for that mm-hmm. long and like known me since we laughed, like before I got my teeth fixed, he always said. <laughs> <laughs> known me forever They've oh my god I love ever. things like that when people know stuff like that about you yeah like you know it's the best you feel so known right yes <laughs> <laughs> and then Deanna Walker and Rick Beresford their husband and wife I met them when I was like 25 
they were writing for my first publisher, who I was not writing for anymore, but still very close to, um, invited me to a writer's night that they were doing in Nashville. And I went, really just fell in love with how cute Rick and Deanna were. And I was like, they're so funny. <laughs> and I met them. They pitched a song to me that ended up on my first album. And I just love them. Like, I just love them. And going to their house to write with them was like this extremely cathartic experience like they feed you they laugh with you they you tell them stories and like they know about your life and like it's just writing is a very intimate it is um, it is yeah thing when you especially yeah. when you do it with other people mm -hmm. and so you want to do it with really kind um empathetic and discreet people and so that's who they are and i love them still write together to this day collaborators and friends like this brought up two things for my mind. One is, is we really have to make it safe to create the people we surround ourselves by, whether it's in a workshop or a teacher or any kind of setting collaborators, they have to make us feel nurtured and safe. It's not extra. It's essential for what goes on neurobiologically for your brain, brain to create. It needs to be able to relax. It needs to be able to feel safe. So if you're with a teacher or you're with someone who's like making you feel unsafe, either you need to change your story about it or need to get the hell out of there. And the other thing I want to say is it makes me a little wistful. It makes me wonder where can I find some of those collaborators and supporters? I think I feel like I have to do it all alone. My producer, Jeff, on this show is a great collaborator. I'm really grateful for him. But where else can I find those collaborators? Where else can you find them and think outside the box? Because obviously with Reese, it's like, well, making music is a collaborative affair. Movie making, theater, there's a lot of things that you do as a creative practice, a creative um, endeavor that are collaborative, but there's a lot that aren't. And then we can feel like maybe we have to do it alone. So if you felt wistful or curious listening to her, what do you want to look for in your creative life? Which reminds me of in the press that you've been getting in the last months about the Color Me Country radio show that you're doing with Apple and the Color mm -hmm. Me Country Artist Fund. There's been such an emphasis on Black country music women artists coming together to support each other. And there's such an, and so much of your show, Color Me Country, is about, well, it's all about, hey, let's look at this legacy and, mm -hmm. and, and current times of people of color in making country music. So the, the question that I have is by both of these things feel like, they feel like gifts to the world that you're creating. They feel like acts of service in a way. Does it feel like that to you? And does it inspire your creativity in a way to know that you're kind of helping people or raising awareness in these ways and, and helping them by raising money, clearly? Um, that's a or, is great it just, question. or is it just fun? <laughs> um, well, no, you know what? It's um, like, so it's been a year since I started working on this project. I haven't been with Apple that long, but that's how long I've been working on. Okay, them. yeah, I didn't I didn't realize it had a life before Apple. Yeah, I, I was ready. Actually, the week that I had my meeting with Apple in June, I was a week away from launching the first episode. Okay, and but once um, again, doing it on your own, not waiting for the gatekeeper, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody was like, you should shop this. And I'm like, I'm not shopping this. Mm -hmm. And like Apple ended up coming to me because of another, but that's a whole other story. But anyway, sidebar, but if you are a creative and you have something that's like gnawing at you and like in your gut, like all the time, do it because the universe, I swear, I believe the universe will meet you. And, you just, and, and if you don't do it, somebody else will. And somebody else will. 
because <laughs> I've had that happen too. Well, no, I've had so many people <laughs> tell me that they had this idea to do this show, but they just didn't do it. Oh yeah. Because it's, yeah. right. It's the culture, you know, and we don't need to be unique. We just need to take action. Yeah. It, so it started out as just like, I just want to tell these people's story mm-hmm. because I know how important it is to feel acknowledged mm-hmm. and to feel like what you've done, it matters. And so it was really important to me to impart that feeling on other people because I know what that's like. I know what it's like to read an article about Black country artists and like have your name completely omitted from it or have it just boiled down to like a few people when you know that it's a, it's a larger thing. Yeah, it started out just as that. It's like me just wanting to tell my story and then tell other people's story and have it just out here. And so there's a historical record of it somewhere. But can, can I and just then, say, like, you, you sure. took, once again, you took this, you know, the crap show that started with the la- label and here all these years later, you're still making something good out of it. I'm trying. Like, I just, I you just are. believe in like, I don't know. I'm a big believer in um, reciprocity. And generosity for, and, for and me. Being ge- yeah. And like, yeah. and just trying to like, I want this. So I'm going to give this to you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm going to make sure that there's a lot of this happening in the world. I oh, want to be, the, I do. And like, I swear it's not, it's not like me trying to be a savior or anything. It's just like, it's more so just like, I just want, I don't want anybody to feel like how I felt. And yeah. so like, if I can, if I can prevent that. And also I just wanted a safe, I wanted to create a safe space with the show. Generosity, never wanting anyone else to experience what she experienced. I've been working on that in my own life too. How can I lift other people up? How can I get their message out? It's really nurturing to turn our own frustrations around or our pain and turn it into something that we can do to help others. So where could you be generous? Is it a mentoring opportunity? Is it a Instagram lives with people sharing your platform? Is it working with somebody's child to help them with something you know? And where are you being too generous and not leaving enough time for your own work? Because I see that on the flip side a lot too. Where do you need to take back some of that giving, giving, giving and give it to yourself? That's what it started out as. And then as we were going and, you know, as I would hear from people and, and behind the scenes and you know, the off mic conversations that Mm -hmm. I was having with a lot of people that I was interviewing, I realized this is something else. Like this isn't just your little show. Like this is, this is something else. And so what's something else? What did you realize? This is like a, um, it's validating Mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Yeah. It's validating and it's inspirational to a lot of people too. And it's, um, it's affirming. And representational. Yes. And like how important it is to to see those images and like, Mm -hmm. you know, with the stories of people being afraid to go to country festivals because they don't know how they're going to be received or something like that. And it was like, Reese, I finally feel like I I have a show that I can listen to and I feel like it's representing people like me or, Mm -hmm. you know, it was so nice to see other country singers that look like me. You know, I never heard of any of these people before. And it's like blowing my mind that this music exists and I didn't know that it was out there. And it's created a network. And like a lot of people are friends that have been on the show. Um, A lot of people, they'll reach out to each other because of the show. And like folks are writing together. People are hanging out together. (laughs) Oh my God, that's so awesome. It's really nice. And like, I can't take credit for all of that because social media makes a lot of that happen. But like, it's just... 
You're the instigator. It's a thing that's happening now. The fund was because of my, so my partner in this is an, um, a host, another Apple music host, Kelly McCartney. And Kelly has, for the last two years, run a fund called the Rainy Day Fund, which is for BIPOC, LGBTQ+, and any other marginalized group that's pursuing music. Mm-hmm. So Kelly calls me one day and says, hey, do you want to do an offshoot for Color Me Country? And I was like, yeah, actually, that's a great idea. And so we just established it in December. The whole idea of it is like, it's amazing how much $500 or $1,000 can change the trajectory of things. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was working my minimum wage job and trying to make ends meet and recording at night, trying to get a record deal, trying to choose between getting gas or, you know, paying for studio time. Or like, am I going to eat or are we going to get this new outfit so I can take this meeting? I know what that's like. And so I just wanted to be sure that $500 wasn't going to keep someone from pursuing their dream. Wow. I love. So it's not a whole lot of money, but it's like, it's a, it's an ego boost. It's a spiritual boost Mm -hmm. to get that. And you're like, one less thing I have to think about. Yeah. And the stress, stress relief, you know, for this. Yeah. So it's like, I call them little postcards from God. Like it's like the little tap on the shoulder to say, keep going and keep doing this. And so, yeah, that's what the fund is about. So I don't know. It's, (laughs) does it make me feel creative to answer your, your initial question? Um, It makes me feel good inside. Mm Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, it takes up a lot of time. So Yeah, that was my, that was kind of related, right? Like that's a lot to manage. I mean, doing a podcast is one thing. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it. I know what time it takes, but then another, you know, a nonprofit on the side. Yeah, it's a lot. Again, I need a, I need an assistant. I'm going to help you with that. (laughs) Lord, I got to learn how to let go, but I'm not as creative as I want to be. And so I'm going to have to start scheduling creativity, mm-hmm. which will be an interesting thing. I never had to do that before, mm-hmm. but I'm going to have to start scheduling it. Yeah. Cause you still have young kids. Yeah. I have a one-year-old and a nine-year-old. So, yeah, that's but we're going to have to, we need help. So yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to start scheduling time for mommy to create. Yeah. And do you miss it? Do you miss creating right now? Is it, is it gnawing at you or does it feel like this is just a different season? I feel like I'm still creative. I'm not creative in the way that I have been traditionally. Ooh, I love which that. is through songwriting, but I'm creative in the way we put together the shows, putting the playlists together, finding artists, figuring out the angle to tell their stories, figuring out ways to connect the artists to each other. Like, oh, you need to know such and such. I'm like creating other things on the side, like other offshoots of the show mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So I'm still creative. I'm just not not in my traditional sense, not in the way that I normally am. You know, that also is so insightful because sometimes our creative mode changes and to recognize it and to go with it and then to develop all of these skills that you just named. I mean, that's huge to think about. How am I going to slant the story? And how am I, you know, where am I going to search for people who need Mm -hmm. to be found? That's extremely creative. I want to go back to, well, she still looks good. (laughs) (laughs) How much of a pressure do you feel to about how you, I mean, you're very beautiful. Thank you. How much is, does that feel like a pressure? Does it feel, do you feel angry that that still plays a role? Is it just like just maintenance time that sucks? (laughs) I mean, 
It's well, it's taken on different meaning to me at, mm-hmm. at this stage in the game. Like I'm, I'll be 40 this year and um, I just had a baby like a, a year and a half ago. And so, um, and I've been stuck in the house because of a pandemic. So like, I, you know, I've put on, I have put on pandemic weight. Me too. And um, I am a recovering, I, I'm recovering from an eating disorder. I had an eating disorder oh, all yeah. through my teens, through my 20s. That was a part of what I went to therapy for. And in my 30s, thank God, I finally feel like I have a handle on it. Like it's like a, a it's a daily thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I still have those thoughts. I have to reason through them. Mm-hmm. Like I have to recognize them and then like sit down and like, okay, girl, like, so you know that it's not good for you to do that, right? And I think part of it is I have two girls. And one of which is a little woman that is like eyeballing me 24 seven in anything that I do, she's going to do. And I remember her asking me once, what kind of diet are you on now? When she was like four. And I was like, oh, you notice. They don't miss all of them. Yeah. Like mommy's paleo and then Mm -hmm. mommy's a vegan and then Mm -hmm. mommy's doing this. And then I realized it's just, part of my eating disorder. It's, mm-hmm. it's manifested in a different right, way. Right. Healthy eating. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cleanses. I saw someone say that on, um, on, on Twitter the other day and I felt seen like they were mm-hmm. just like, how many of your friends that are vegans are actually masking an eating mm-hmm. disorder? And I was like, mm-hmm. that made me feel like I needed to get a handle on it. And being in the entertainment industry did not help Oh God, I can't having I can't an eating disorder. And, um, you know, you're like at your skinniest and everybody's telling you how amazing you look. Well, they do that and, in culture in general, but they definitely yeah. do that a million times more when your livelihood is tied to Yeah. It. So everybody's telling you how great you look and like you've worked out for four hours a day. And I remember I was being held up there was a person that was talking to another artist that was signed to my label. And they're like, Reese gets up at four o'clock in the morning and works out. And then she works out again in the evening. Like you need to be more like that. And I was thinking to myself, I'm like, I am miserable. (laughs) You don't want to be like me. Please don't hold me up. (laughs) Yeah. Please don't hold me up. But like, it still felt good too, to be like someone saying that about you. To answer your question, like in the really, really long form, (laughs) I hate it. I hate that this is what it is. And it makes me really happy to see some of the women that are being lifted up right mm-hmm. now in mm-hmm. our culture and in the music industry and seeing, you know, different shapes and sizes and, and that sort of thing. I think that's really awesome. But I mean, unfortunately, until we change a lot of things, like until we burn down a lot of these things, uh, institutions, fortunately, we live in a patriarchy. Our value, unfortunately, as women is placed on how young we are, mm-hmm. how good we look, how thin, and, yeah, how thin we are, all of that. And so it's a thing that I have to fight every day to think about. Yeah. But yeah, I hear that a lot. Like, girl, you look good. Like, mm-hmm. you look good for almost 40. And I'm like, I'm, this is what I look like. Like, I don't, what do you want? Right. The life? comparison that is immediately baked into that statement. You look good. 440. 440. I'm like, I just look good. How about that? Like, so, you know, and I just took a job on camera at CMT. And so like, I'm having to like quell these things in my mind. You look fine. Because a lot of the girls that I'm talking to are like 20. 
right. or 22 or whatever. And so like, I'm on camera with a 22 year old and it's, <laughs> I have shoes older than you. <laughs> and, <laughs> and yeah, and, and you're okay. Like this look yeah. is fine. And this look is fine. Yeah. Too. Like all yeah. these looks are fine. Yeah, I'm 58. So I definitely... I definitely feel that too. And you look fabulous. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, I am in love with you. I'm in love with the stance that you're taking in the world. I'm excited for this conversation to be heard. And I want to ask you my final question that I love to ask, which is what will you learn next? Ooh, gosh, that's great. Um, I'm in the process of learning. Um, 2020 was rough yeah, on, a on us personally. And I say us, I mean, my husband and I, we had a really bad year, 2020. Mm. Thank God that both of us are stubborn. And um, <laughs> he surprised me in a lot of really good ways toward the end of the year with his relentlessness in loving me and wanting to be together. And so I'm in the process now of learning how to, learning how to love every day, like actively love him every day and be a good partner to him every day. Oh, That's the I, biggest thing. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm learning it because I wasn't really great at it. Yeah. So yeah. have had an experience like that in a mini way with my partner and that really hits home. Yeah, really it's, um, you know, like he does stuff and it makes me mad. And, <laughs> you know, we went through a lot of stuff and, um, and I didn't think we were going to make it. Mm -hmm. I'm getting emotional even thinking about it. And I didn't think we were going to make it. And so all these great things are happening in this other parts of my life. And like, everybody sees me and, and they're just like, oh, you, you got everything that you want. And like, it just wasn't good. And he just shocked me with his capacity to love me. And so I'm, um, I'm working really hard at learning how to be, um, how to reflect God in our mm -hmm. relationship to him so that he will reflect it back to me and just how to be that loving, unconditional love, like really what that means mm -hmm. and model that for our daughters so that they don't repeat our mistakes, but they repeat our, our triumphs and our successes. And so that's what I'm trying to learn. Oh, that's so gorgeous and so inspiring to me. I also, I said that was the last question, but now I'm going to ask another one, <laughs> <laughs> which is that I find that when my husband loves me that way, that I have to let it in. Yeah. I, I'm constantly learning to be deserving of it. Yeah. That's the thing. That's the kicker right there. But I mean, like, that's the thing in every, like, it's funny how that boils down to everything. Mm -hmm. Like meaning in, in whether it's your art or in your relationships or whatever, it all boils down to, I don't know that I deserve this. It's that, it's that feeling of like, I don't deserve the imposter syndrome, mm -hmm. like invades all things. Or that I don't deserve to be seen. Mm, yeah. You know, I'm just too, no, 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 don't, don't look at me. Yeah. I'm too ugly. I'm too, I don't mean outside, but inside. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or this is too imperfect, you know, thinking of our work. 
Well, I am so full of gratitude and I'm so grateful for you and what you're doing in the world and for your time. Thank you so much. Oh my God. Thank you. This was great. Um, thank you for asking me to be a part of this. This is wonderful. You're going to love Reese Palmer. Go find your videos, go find her music, go to reesepalmer.com, go on YouTube, listen to her show, Color Me Country on Apple Music. And most of all, what are you going to take away and remember and put in your creative toolkit for this week? Here's what I'm going to remember. Hey, I wrote about this in my book, Why Bother? I wrote about wanting to get on Oprah more than anything and then realizing once I got on it, oh, Oh no, <laughs> no one can choose me but me. But just like Reese said at the beginning of the interview, we have to keep learning this over and over again. You know, I'm 30 years into this creative thing and I'm still learning and I still fantasize that someone's gonna love me, someone's gonna do this for me, and then suddenly everyone's gonna know about my work. Is that creeping in for you? Or are you hiding from being known? Are you not putting your work out there, whatever it is, finding the collaborators, finding the people who wanna be generous with you? Are there some asks? that you can make this week to be seen. What does this stir up in you that you can put into action this week that will help you create out loud? And we're gonna help you create out loud next week with Anne Lore of Nest Labs. We dive into talking about how do you make money as a maker? How do you take care of yourself creatively? And we're gonna talk about one of my favorite subjects, toxic originality. And it'll be a lot easier to tune in if you subscribe wherever you get your podcast, because then we'll just pop up every week there. And you know what? Reese talked about generosity. And if you have a moment to be generous, not just towards me and my podcast, but towards my guests, give us a review. Subscribe and give us a review. That would be awesome. And maybe you want to tell a friend or two about it. That would be double extra awesome. But most of all, what I want from the total totality of my heart, not just the bottom, not just the top, is for you to keep creating, keep expressing, keep sharing. This is Create Out Loud with Jen Loudon. See you next week.